Good morning again. I invite you to take your Bible this morning uh, and open to 1 Corinthians 15. If you do not have a Bible and visiting with us, feel free to use one of the pew Bibles there. It's on page 961, page 961 there in the pew Bible. As you find your way there, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19. Let's pray, and then we'll read our passage together this morning. Father, thank you for the reminders in song of the wonderful mystery of Jesus Christ, of his death on the cross on our behalf. Lord, the fact that you hung him on a tree in our place, and you laid him in a grave, and he died but yet you raised him from the dead, showing the fact that he was the perfect sacrifice, that Satan had no accusation against him, sin was not found in him, and death had no claim on him, and he was raised again. Lord, we thank you for this hope. And as we look at these words this morning, Lord, I pray that your spirit, your Holy Spirit would help us understand. Lord, I pray that your word would work in us to make us more like Jesus reminding us of the hope that we have. Lord, we pray all this in your Son's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19. Uh, please follow along as I read this morning. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, <coughs> how can some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're looking at this passage this morning, and I'm sure you noticed as I read it for you, it had a little bit of a, if a woodchuck chuck, you know, if a woodchuck could chuck wood kind of feel to it, right? If he's raised, is he not raised? What, what's going on here? Well, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and in chapter 15, he's writing all about the resurrection. The fact that Jesus was crucified on the cross on Good Friday, that he was buried in a tomb, and that three days later, as the women came to the tomb, they found the stone rolled away. They found an angel sitting there saying to the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? Meaning Jesus Christ has been raised. He's not in the tomb. This is the resurrection. And the church in Corinth which is a city in modern-day Greece, uh, they had questions about the resurrection, about whether it was even true. And Paul breaks all this down in the entirety of 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 19 and looking at the fact that denial of the resurrection makes our faith futile. That's our big idea this morning, is that the denial of the resurrection makes our faith futile. Do you ever hate it when you go to grab a flashlight and you go to turn it on and the batteries don't work, right? Because the lights go out, a big storm blows through, 
And you go and grab the flashlight and you turn it on and it just very dimmed and all of a sudden it just kind of trickles away. Because right? you never need a flashlight when the batteries are fully charged. You only need a flashlight when the batteries are half dead. Or even now, we have our cell phones, right? And these double as calendars and cameras and phones, of course, but flashlights now. <laughs> I think uh, last August when we had the big storm here and knocked power out for a while, I'm like, oh, I'll turn my flashlight on. And it said like less than 20% battery. It's like, great. When you have something that should work, a flashlight, uh, your phone, something that requires power or battery, and you go to use it and it's almost dead and then it's fully dead. You have something that fully functions as it's supposed to, but yet without that power, it's basically useless, right? A flashlight, a phone, a car <laughs> with a dead battery. It might be the nicest car in the world, but with a dead battery, not going too far. As we look at the resurrection this morning, you might think, how does this apply? As I mentioned, the church in Corinth was celebrating Christianity. They were believers. They believed in Jesus Christ. They were Christians. But yet, there were quite a few of them that denied the resurrection, saying that, no, Jesus did not rise from the dead. In fact, there's no resurrection. But we should still follow Christianity. And Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christianity without the resurrection is like a flashlight without batteries. It might work fine, but ultimately, it doesn't have any power. It's lost its edge. It's good for nothing, really. Because as we come to 1 Corinthians 15, and as we look here at verses 12 through 19 and the denial of the resurrection, how it makes our faith futile, without the resurrection, we lose so much. In fact, we almost lose all of Christianity. One author said this. He says, the resurrection is the hinge on which the door of Christianity swings. The resurrection is the hinge on which the door of Christianity swings. Without the resurrection, that door doesn't sing, swing and that door becomes a wall or a very large hole in a wall. <laughs> it doesn't work as it's supposed to. So let's look here at verses 12 through 19 to see what the effects are of denying the resurrection. So starting in verse 12, Paul is writing. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So he starts with this premise. He says, Christ is proclaimed, is preached as being raised from the dead. Paul was preaching that Jesus was raised from the dead. Other men and women were preaching that Jesus had been raised from the dead. In fact, in verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 11 of chapter 15, Paul gives evidence to people who saw Jesus raised from the dead. He talks about James and Cephas, that's Peter, Peter the apostle. And then over 500 brethren at once, over 500 people at one time saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. So he is laying out this argument that there are people and lots of people that have seen Jesus raised from the dead. And Paul says, I have too. Paul has seen the risen Christ. And in verse 12, he says, we are preaching that Jesus has been raised from the dead. That is what they are saying. He's very clear. But they are asking the question, I don't think there's a resurrection of the dead. Why are they asking that question? 
Well, the church in Corinth was a very metropolitan area. It was a very busy city. It was a port. Uh, it was on a narrow isthmus. It's hard to say. Um, if you remember your geography from junior high, right? An isthmus. I can't even say it uh, <laughs> this morning. It's a narrow strip of land that connects two larger areas. So you think of like Panama connects North and South America. Uh, and there are other illustrations of this. And Corinth is right there. So there's a lot of traffic, a lot of commerce, a lot of ideas in Corinth. And one of the modern ideas in Corinth, modern meaning in the first century, was that the body was bad. That the body was a prison for your soul. That it was better to die and to have your spirit released from your body. That was a major uh, important way of thinking in the minds of Greek philosophers that trickled down to Greek culture. And so it'd be very normal for the believers in Corinth to think, you know what? I don't want a resurrection. I just want my spirit to be free. And then I don't have to put up with my human body. Now, there are some times as I'm getting older, the aches and pains come quicker. I know a few of you are probably like, yeah, just wait. <laughs> uh, when you want to be free from this body, from the aches and pains that come with it. But if that is true, then Jesus has not been raised from the dead. And that makes a big difference. So this is the background of their thinking. So if there is no resurrection of the dead, the first result of denying that resurrection is that Jesus hasn't been raised. So number one, Christ is not risen, very simply. If there is no resurrection in verse 13, then not even Christ has been raised. So this goes all the way back to the very beginning here. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then let's get this clear. Jesus has not been raised from the dead. He's still separated from his body. His body is somewhere that has been hidden or done away with. We don't know. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus is still not raised, that he has not been raised from the dead. Why is this important? Well, the resurrection of Jesus was the pattern that every believer was going to follow. You might have heard the term first fruits before. Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, specifically his resurrection, is the pattern that we're all going to follow. If you've ever taught a child or someone to do something like you're doing it, my dad was very good at that. He would do something and he says, do it exactly how I'm doing it. He was setting the pattern for me. That's what Jesus' resurrection is for the believer. That he is going to set the pattern. Everybody is going to follow in resurrection like Jesus if they know him as their savior. So if Jesus has not been raised and that pattern is broken, then he is not the example and the pattern that the rest of us will follow. And it says that not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. <clears throat> he says, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain. That word vain, it means empty or useless. Or it's a synonym for futile, which we're going to talk again about here in a little bit. It's in vain. There's no point, right? There's no point. Sometimes as you're shoveling snow in the winter, is there a point to it, right? It just continues on. There's no point. Or raking leaves, right? If you have a big maple tree and you rake them all, and literally two hours later, a gust of wind and pff, your yard's covered again. 
Why? Why are we even doing this? Paul is saying if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then he's not risen, then why are we preaching? What's the point? It's vain. And our faith is in vain. This faith is the idea of our, our whole belief in God and what he says he's going to do. It's empty. If Jesus has not been raised, no point to any of it. Just think right now how much of our theology and the promises we hold to would be affected if we deny the resurrection. If we deny that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And the biggest consequence is that Jesus would still be dead. And if Jesus is still dead, what hope do we have? So Paul starts his argument here. He says, if there's no resurrection, then Christ is not risen. Secondly, we are misrepresenting God in verse 15. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. This word misrepresenting is the idea of bearing false witness or lying under oath. We've all either hopefully not been in court too much or watched enough law and order to know that when you testify, you know, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. This word misrepresenting is the word for bearing false witness, of lying, of being sworn in and then saying something that's not true. Paul says, if we are preaching that Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's not raised from the dead, then we are lying. We are misrepresenting God. We are committing an act that is false. He says in the end of verse 15, because we testified about God that he raised Christ. The testimony that Paul has been preaching, that other believers have been preaching, is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he says, this is not true if the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been risen. We misrepresent God. This is a big deal. Do you know what would happen to prophets in the Old Testament when they misrepresented God? When they lied concerning something God proclaimed? They were to be put to death. That was how serious it was that if you misrepresented God, that the consequence and result was the fact that you would be stoned, that you would be put to death. That is a severe consequence. That is a large uh, sentence for an act of sin. But that's how serious God was about his own name. He is jealous for his own name's sake. And that if someone misrepresents him, he takes that as a great offense. And if Jesus has not been raised, Paul says that all of us who've been preaching the gospel, in a sense, deserve to be punished. We deserve that punishment because we've been lying. We've been bearing false witness. And misrepresenting God has additional consequences. If we can't trust the fact that people are preaching about the resurrection and we're misrepresenting God, what else can't we not trust, right? What else do we need to look skeptically at? This is a big deal. If Jesus is not risen, then everyone who is preaching the gospel has been lying, and dare I say it, promoting fake news. Right? You can't trust it. You can't trust the message of the gospel of Jesus has not been raised from the dead. So why would you listen to anybody else who says, well, Jesus has been raised from the dead. No, he's not. Well, it doesn't matter. Do this. No, 
The whole argument breaks down if we are found misrepresenting God in one area. The credibility of Christianity immediately takes a hit when someone misrepresents God in small ways and in big ways. And denying the resurrection is a big way of undercutting the credibility of Christianity. If Jesus has not been raised, Paul argues, then what message and what God can we actually trust? Jesus has not been raised, then Christ has not risen. Jesus has not been raised, then we are misrepresenting God, and you can't trust anything that any preacher has said about God. Thirdly, as we continue on here, in verse 17, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And this is perhaps one of the gravest consequences of denying the resurrection. We remain in our sin. We are still in our sin. Now you might be sitting here, and you might have grown up in church, and you understand the resurrection and why it's important. Praise the Lord for that. It's a wonderful day to celebrate that. I was talking with Carrie yesterday and thinking about Easter and There's a lot of things you can do to have fun at Easter and celebrate in different angles, but we were talking at some point, we just need to stop and reflect. The greatest thing that we can ever do on Easter is just to remember the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. What more do we need to add to make it exciting? Jesus has been raised from the dead. But if you're here and you maybe don't go to church that often, we're glad that you're here this morning. You might be thinking, why is the resurrection such a big deal? Well, it goes back to the cross, but actually all the way back to the beginning, as I mentioned in Genesis 3. So Genesis 1 starts out, in beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? God created everything, and we believe that, that God created everything in six literal days. He created the heavens and earth, the sun, the moon, stars, everything in six days. And on the sixth day, he created something very special. He created Adam. And why is Adam special? Adam is special because he's made in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, the beasts of the field and the fish and the birds, they have life, they have breath, but they vary from God in the fact that they don't have a personal relationship with God like Adam did. For God created Adam in a very personal way. He took the dust of the earth, and what else did he do? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And God would speak with Adam. He would commune and relate to Adam. Adam had a special place because he created Adam as the steward, the caretaker of his creation. Adam was to watch over the garden, take care of it. And Adam, as much as he tried, he needed a helper. And none of the other animals looked like him. And so what did God do? God created for him a helper named Eve. God created Adam and Eve. They are made in his image. Adam and Eve could think and they could have emotions, and they could communicate, and they could create all these things that reflect God's image. But something happened. As they were in the garden, a serpent came, and we understand that certain serpent to be Satan, the enemy of God, the one who rebelled against God. And he came to Eve, and he said to Eve, why don't you eat? You will be like God if you eat of the fruit of this tree. And and Eve says, well, no, God told us not to. And the serpent said to Eve, did God really say that? Causing her to doubt. And Eve took and ate of the fruit and gave to her husband Adam and he ate. And at that moment, sin entered into the world. Sin is disobedience. It's rebellion. 
they have rebelled against God. And the consequence for that rebellion, for that sin, first and foremost, is death. Physical death. Adam and Eve would have lived forever. But yet, death entered into the world, and death has spread to all man. Sin has spread to all man. You are a sinner, one, because you choose to sin, but two, because you are a descendant of Adam and Eve, and that sin has been passed down to you. Romans 5 talks about that. And because of our sin, we deserve punishment. We all deserve punishment for our sin because God is a creator. He owns us, and we've rebelled against him. We are his creation. We are, in a sense, rebelling against his authority. And if that's where it stopped, that would be a very, very sad story. But what did God do? God gave a promise to Adam and Eve, specifically to Eve, that a descendant of hers would be born. And that descendant would be hurt by the serpent, bruising the heel. A heel, it would hurt to be bruised on your heel. But it's not life-threatening. But the descendant of Eve would bruise the serpent on the head. That word bruise is actually the word crush. Satan would crush the heel of Eve's descendant. But Eve's descendant would crush the head of the serpent. I could ask you this question. Which one is more life-threatening? A heel injury or a head injury? (laughs) A head injury. So the hope was this descendant would come and crush the head of the serpent to be the the victor, the redeemer. And through generation and generation, people would be born and people would come, but there was no descendant that would crush the head of Satan until Jesus was born. Jesus, the perfect son of God, born to Mary, born as a virgin, that he grew that he was without sin, that he lived a sinless life, and that he offered himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our sin needed to be paid for. There was a debt that needed to be paid, and Jesus paid that debt for us on the cross. For God is a holy, loving, and merciful God, but he's a just God. And by Jesus dying on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sin and my sin. Any sin that you will ever commit or have committed and any sin that's ever been committed in the history of the world all the way back to Adam and Eve, Jesus' death was enough. It covered all of that. As the song says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. His death was enough. And so Jesus died. He actually died. His spirit was separated from his body like happens to us when we die. And he was buried in a tomb by some of his followers, and they sealed it. But the hope was that Jesus would be raised again. He even talked about his own resurrection. Jesus prophesied and prophesied, and he died for the forgiveness of our sins. And okay, but if Jesus died for our sins, and he stayed dead, that's... (laughs) That's going to make him a liar because he said he would be raised again. And in fact, his death would just be another death like the sacrifices in the Old Testament. And so comes Sunday morning. So comes the third day after the crucifixion. And the stone is rolled away. The angels come. The guards are scared. The women see that the tomb is empty. And Jesus has been raised from the dead. 
His resurrection is the proof. It's, it's the exclamation mark. It's the, the declaration that everything I've said is true and everything I've promised has come to pass and that sin has been defeated, Satan has been defeated, and ultimately death has been defeated. And so if you take out that resurrection, where is that declaration of victory? Where is the hope that we have? In fact, Jesus' death is just like any other death. It's not different. And if that's the case, we are still in our sins. Then our forgiveness of sins is incomplete, and we still deserve to go to hell. The resurrection is the victory over sin and death. Jesus, if he didn't raise from the dead, was just somebody who tried really hard, gave a good effort, but still didn't do enough. We are still in our sin. Our faith is futile. It's powerless and empty, and it's good for nothing. Having the cross without the empty tomb is like having an airplane with only one wing. It just doesn't work. You can have the cross and the crucifixion and Good Friday, but having all that without Sunday morning and the empty tomb, it's pointless. It just doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, then we are still in our sins. And Christianity is a bunch of baloney. And it can just go the way of any other religion in the world today. Paul continues in verse 18 with our fourth point. We have no hope after death. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He says, then those who have fallen asleep, that term fallen asleep is a euphemism. It's a phrase used to describe something else. And that phrase is death, right? Those who have fallen asleep, those who have, who have passed away, those who have died. And what is assumed if someone falls asleep is that they wake up, right? Some of you, it takes longer to wake up. <laughs> um, just this past, uh, past weekend, we were down visiting my parents and uh, our two older kids were in a room uh, sharing a bed, and at 12.04, my son comes running in because I'm disoriented, and he's like, Dad, Dad, there's a loud noise in our room. What's going on? So I get up, and I walk in, and the alarm clock was set to go off at midnight. So it's 12.05 by now, and Ezra is wide awake. Dad, the clock's going off, and I'm trying to rub the sleep out of my eyes and stumble around in this room I'm not familiar with, and the alarm clock is there on on the, uh, the end table next to the bed, and there's my daughter, Eden. This thing is loud. I look at my daughter, just sleeping peacefully. I cannot figure out how to shut it off. So what do I have to, have to turn on the light? I turn on the light. Eden sleeps through it all. Finally shut off the alarm clock, put Ezra back to bed, and go back to sleep. The idea there is that when you fall asleep, you are woken up, that there is the morning that comes after the night, whether it's through an alarm clock or whatever it is you use to wake up, that if you fall asleep, you will wake back up. Here, those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, the hope is that one day that they will be resurrected, that they, in a sense, will wake up from their slumber of death. And that is the hope that we have as believers in Jesus Christ, that though you die and your body is put in the ground, and your spirit goes to be with the Lord, one day those two things will be reunited, and you will have a perfect glorified body forever. You don't float around on a cloud strumming a little harp for eternity. 
You enjoy a real physical body where you will eat food and drink, drink, and you will enjoy being with other people on a real earth. That's the hope that we have. But if you have fallen asleep, if you've died, trusting the fact that Jesus Christ has been resurrected, but he really hasn't been, then you have fallen asleep with a false hope. You have died with no hope. Paul says those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, that they have just, they're, they're just dead and that's all that they are, that there's no hope after death. And he says in verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He says if believers in Jesus Christ, if we're the only ones who hope in Christ, but he hasn't been raised from the dead, then our hope is for this life only. There's no hope for the life to come. He says, we are to be pitied. That word pitied, one dictionary says it this way. It's the idea of deserving of sympathy because of one's pathetic condition. Without Jesus Christ being raised from the dead, we are in a pathetic condition for we have hope in something that will not come to pass. We are in a pathetic condition for we have no hope because Jesus is dead. And that's all we have to look forward to. Our lives are wasted preaching and believing something that does not exist. And if this is true, if we have no hope for the world to come, then why don't we just live it up right now, right? Paul says, if we have no hope, then let's just eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But we do have hope for the life to come and therefore we live differently now. Paul is laying out this argument demonstrating why if you remove the resurrection from the gospel, from Christianity, our faith is empty because Jesus hasn't been risen. We've been lying about God and what he's done. We are still in our sin and deserve punishment and we have no hope as we face death in this life. That is a dire situation. And if he stopped there, we would be hopeless. But as we look in verse 20, he has this simple statement. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the pattern of everyone who has died and everyone who will die. His resurrection is the hope that we have. And I would love to go through the rest of chapter 15, but breakfast is coming soon and it would be here all day. <laughs> But I encourage you, if you're interested, to read the rest of chapter 15. For it lays out the hope and the pattern of the resurrection. And what does it culminate in? It culminates in the end, in verses 54 through the end. When he is talking about what it looks like. And Paul says this. He actually quotes from the Old Testament. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is removed. It's harmless. Why? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ, through his crucifixion, and through his resurrection. We participate in that. Verse 20, as we looked at, writes the ship in regard to this discussion. 
that Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's a dangerous thing to deny the resurrection. It would undermine everything that we preach and believe, but Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is the one who is alive. There is no need to worry, for God is trustworthy. Jesus is alive. The gospel is true, and the good news should be proclaimed, for the tomb is empty. What hope we have. We have a surer hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ than we know that the sun will come up tomorrow. Romans 6 verses 1 through 11 describes our union with Christ and our life with Christ. And it says this, Paul says in Romans 6, 1 through 11, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with a resurrection like his. What a hope that we have. What a hope that we have. And he continues in verse six. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we might not no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are in Jesus Christ. We have died with him when we believe in Jesus Christ. And we've been raised with him when we believe in Jesus Christ. And we live for God through Jesus Christ. What a hope that we have. What a hope we have. We have the hope of eternal life because Jesus has been raised from the dead and so shall every believer who trusts in him. We have hope in this life and the next. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, or you're just new to church, you're thinking, man, this resurrection's a big deal. It is. We'd love to visit with you more about it about the consequences of sin and how your sin separates you from God and how your sin deserves to be punished because God is a holy God and you are accountable to him. But there is hope in Jesus Christ. And we'd love to take the opportunity to sit down with you, to take God's word, to show you from it how he sent Jesus to die, to be buried, to be raised again, how he calls us then to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for Jesus Christ. Jesus said that he came that they may have life and life abundant. That doesn't mean life's going to be easy, but it's going to be filled with a joy and a hope and a peace that passes all understanding so that whether you face times of blessing or times of difficulty, times of life and joy or times of death, you can have hope for Jesus has faced it all. He's been crucified, he's been buried, and he's been raised from the dead. Behold him, because he lives. The chorus goes like this. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Desi's going to come and we're going to stand together and we're just going to sing that refrain.
together as we reflect on the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead and the fact that we have hope in this life and the next because of it. Please stand if you would and let's sing together the chorus of Because He Lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And that because he lives, we can face tomorrow. We can face the ups and downs. Lord, that we have the promise of eternal life. Lord, what a hope in the midst of a dangerous, difficult, sinful, troubled world. Lord, in the effects of disease and sickness, or the fact that it's not supposed to be this way. Because of sin it is, and yet we know through the resurrection one day it will all be set straight, and that we will be able to participate in that, and that we can trust you and your word in your son Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ and in Christ alone. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Life is worth the living just because he lives. Lord, we thank you for this hope. We pray in your son's name.